Good afternoon. Glad you're here for the afternoon service, this prayer meeting. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation starting today, and then when I'm done, we will actually break into groups and pray, and then we'll sing and conclude with our benediction as normal. If you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses of Revelation 1 and start to get oriented to this book. I almost would say that if the next three weeks are, you know, it could almost be called an introduction to Revelation 1, 2, and 3. So we're going to spend some time introducing as we walk through the first eight verses and getting our minds around this letter that was given to the church, the churches, and to try to come to an understanding of how to approach this book. So Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this as it is, the word of the Lord that your spirit would give us ears to hear what the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, is saying by the spirit to his church. We pray that we would understand your word as it was given to the first century church and as your spirit has superintended that we might receive it in the church in every generation. We ask your help in looking at this revelation of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would cause us to be thankful that we have received this word. May we look to him more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in my early Christian life, and it may be the case for many of you still, it may have been the case for many of you in your early Christian life, Revelation was like a spooky enigma to me. I remember in high school first being shown, I wasn't really a believer then, but first being shown a series of movies. If you guys remember, one of them was called The Thief in the Night or something. And and anyway, I was scared to death of whatever happened to be in this book, and I wasn't particularly interested in spending any time reading it. The Left Behind series came sometime after that, and reading Revelation for me became like trying to put together an unsolvable puzzle. And the pieces that I thought I figured out how to put together often seemed dark and ominous and frightening. When I went to seminary, I was trained to read this book, and here's the language, as literally as possible. And what that meant was that it was to be understood by the plain meaning wherever that was possible. The plain thing is the main thing. Further, I was taught to read this book, the book of Revelation, particularly as a sequential chronological unfolding of future events. So as soon as Revelation 3 is ended with the letters to the seven churches, you then come to Revelation 4, this heavenly throne room scene, and Revelation 5 where Jesus handed the scroll and he begins to open the scroll and the seals are each broken. And then you read this sequential chronological accounting of future events. Literal did not mean something like according to literary genre. It didn't mean that. In other words, literary genre, like when I read a poem, I read it as poetry and not as narrative. Or when I read history, I read it as history and not as proverbial or something like that. When I come to apocalyptic prophecy, I read it as apocalyptic prophecy. That wasn't the way that what literal meant. What literal meant was it had to correspond. The text of scripture had to have some correspondence to physical realities. 
The plain reading, wherever that's possible, meant that the reading, you can correspond to physical persons, objects, and events is the proper reading. So in the current era, you find these odd-looking locusts in Revelation, and you say, well, that seems something akin to Apache helicopters. Second, passages that do not fit the futurist chronological flow are bent like a wax nose to accommodate the predetermined scheme for reading the text. What do I mean by that? When you come to Revelation chapter 12, that is about a series of events that happened before Revelation 1 through 11. So what happens to our unfolding set of sequential chronological events in the future? Revelation 12 actually isn't about the future at all. Third, or maybe throw this in there as well in the problem of the sequential reading. It appears that, and we'll look at these texts when we come to it. I won't prove it tonight. It appears that the story of Revelation brings us to an end or a consummation more than one time. When you read it as a sequential series of chronological events that lead to the very end in Revelation 19, 20, 21, etc., you miss the fact that the book seems to end, or at least the history of man seems to end in Revelation 7 and Revelation 11 seems to. Is that the case? And so you start to wrestle with those kind of passages. Third, if the book is entirely about the future, at least from chapter 4 on, then one of the questions that came to mind for me as I wrestled through this was, what use did it have for the suffering church in the first century? The ones to whom it was originally written. What use did it have to them if it's about the current events you're looking at as you open your newspaper? It's this sort of reading that tends toward men picking up a newspaper and trying to find a correspondence between world events and what they read in Revelation. So what's happened in Afghanistan, what seems to be the decline of the United States and the West, what's happening with Russia and China, somehow this is all going to fit in. You guys have heard these sorts of interpretations. And so every time we have a new series of events, we have our new turn of political affairs, we have a big group of new end-time speculation with regard to how to read Revelation. We see them trying to take phrases like the mark of the beast. If you're on social media at all, you've seen it. You've seen it. The mark of the beast and say, well, it's in the COVID vaccine. They've actually put it in there, a chip in the COVID vaccine. Have you guys seen this? When you get the COVID vaccine, you've now received the mark of the beast accidentally as if that's possible. What does that phrase even mean? It's just assumed it's some kind of technology that the government's going to secretly stick into you somewhere. But if all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, exhorting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, then revelation must be useful to the first century church and to us right now. Now, these kinds of ways of viewing revelation, if you will, there are four ways that we typically see, and you could actually buy a commentary. I had to read one in seminary that had each passage broken down by each interpretive perspective. And the four primary interpretive perspectives are preterist, the preterist perspective being that these things all happened in the past, in the first century, usually completed somewhere around A.D. 70. And there's a partial preterism, full preterism, I'm not going to get into that. But the point is, the emphasis of the preterist view was that this entire book can be taken in the context of the first century, and particularly the events between AD 66-67 and AD 70 with the reign of Nero. And thus, preterists always date the book before AD 70. Necessarily so. The instinct among preterists, that's a good instinct. 
I want you to hear this. That's a good instinct is this book needed to be relevant to the people living through it. It needed to be something that was speaking to them and their circumstances. And so when we talk about the beast, which is this political machinery that crushes suffering Christians, that sure sounds like it could be the Roman Empire. And we talk about a political leader who leads that machinery, who persecutes suffering Christians, that sure sounds like it could be Nero. And so we understand why that view caught on with some folks, because it has some merits. The futurist view, which is, if you will, the other side of the pendulum, the view that is grounded in dispensationalism now, dispensationalism being a way to read the Bible that's popular in America. In fact, some scholars just call it the American theology now, though it's not fair because it didn't originate here, but it's popular here, is this idea that revelation is entirely about future events, at least starting at chapter 4. Now, the futurist interpretation also has some really good instincts. You want to hear it? The consummation of all things or the end of all things is talked about in Revelation more than once. And clearly that's in the future because all things haven't come to an end. So there are good instincts there. The historicist view was a view that essentially Revelation was really through the seven church and the fallout of the chronology of Revelation is is really giving us each age of church history. So we have seven ages of church history. And so they're trying to find a way in which they map that on to the periods of church history and what the church has gone through. And then the fourth view is the idealist view that's popular, which is the idea that everything in Revelation that's being talked about is is essentially the kind of thing the church continues to go through again and again and again until the end of all things. We have oppressive government. If you look at Psalm 2, the nations rage, the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. That goes throughout history. And so we all face, if you will, the beast. We have false religion. So we all face, if you will, the false prophet. Satan, the dragon, is at work against all Christians throughout history. So we all face him as well. And so the book is just essentially a retelling of what it is the Christian church always goes through until the end. Essentially... The idealist view also has some very good instincts, which is that these kinds of sufferings are common to the whole history of the church. And so we look at that. Now, each of the main views has its strengths and weaknesses. I won't be purely taking any of these views. That is not. I want to be really clear. I hope to draw on their strengths, but not to just take one of these views and press it all the way through the book. That is not because you all can say, finally, someone has come along to give us the proper interpretation of Revelation. That is not what I'm claiming to do. And to be really clear, lots of scholars have taken what is a more eclectic approach, drawing from the strengths of the various views and trying to read the text in its own way, in its own right. This isn't an approach that's original to me. I hope it's a way of reading the book in keeping with how John tells us the book should be read. And so in doing so, I'm not saying that every text is easy to follow. Not saying that. This book will take some work to think through. It'll take some work to think through. Listen to the views held by godly, wise, biblically astute men that I just listed. It takes some work to think through. But, and this is the contention I want you to grab a hold of, particularly tonight and over the next few weeks. Revelation does not have to be some unseeable mystery. Something that you have to have the right kind of code to unlock. Rather, it's quite the opposite. It's not entitled the enigma of Jesus Christ. It's entitled the revelation of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that if we take seriously 
what John says about how this book is to be read, who his audience is, how he employs the Old Testament in describing his visions, then we will have a much clearer understanding as we walk through the book. I'm not saying that you will overcome every difficult text. There isn't a book of the Bible that doesn't have some difficult text in it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you'll have a much clearer understanding. I'm kind of underselling what I'm going to get. If you all showed up tonight thinking, finally, I'm going to be able to unravel every text in Revelation, let me just give you advertising in advance. That is not going to happen. And so the crowd might get smaller next week. We'll see. But what I want to do is hopefully provide you a much clearer understanding as we walk through the text. So tonight we're going to look at the first three verses to start laying some groundwork. And I really have four headings tonight, and I'm pretty confident this afternoon, I'm pretty confident I'm going to get through the first two. So the four headings are, first, the giver of revelation, the giver of revelation, second, the nature of revelation, so the giver of revelation, the nature of revelation, third, the timing of revelation, and by the timing of revelation, I do not mean, just to be clear, I do not mean in what year was Revelation written. Was it written under the reign of Nero prior to 70 AD, or was it written under Domitian somewhere in the 80s or early 90s AD? I don't know. It doesn't give me a date. There are reasons that are helpful toward both perspectives. There are reasons that unwind both perspectives. By timing, what I mean is, when John says, these things that are coming soon... The time is near. What does that mean? Time of Revelation. And fourth, the purpose of Revelation. Why was it given to us? Why is it given to us? So let's start first with the giver of Revelation. The giver of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So who is the giver of this revelation that we're reading? Well, first we note that the revelation of Jesus Christ, the way the grammar is functioning there, it seems to be Christ is the source of this revelation. He's the one giving it. But we read something else. It's a revelation coming from him, but we're giving more information. Look, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. So it's the revelation which God gave to Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be really clear. It is not the revelation which the Father, before all things, gave to the eternal Son, before all things, because the eternal Son couldn't have possibly known these things until the Father told him. God is one. It is the revelation which the Father gave to Jesus Christ, his son, as our mediator, as our king, as the Christ. The father gave it to him. So in other words, Jesus Christ, according to his office, not according to his divine nature. God gave it to Jesus, who entrusted it to an angel who gave it to John the apostle. Look there. The revelation of Jesus Christ In other words, it's from Jesus, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known. How did Jesus make it known? By sending his angel to his servant, John. So God gave it to Jesus Christ, our mediatorial king. And Jesus, if you will, gave it to an angel, a messenger, who then 
delivers it to John. And then John delivers it to us. Verse 2, who bore witness, John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now notice that comma, even to all that he saw. So you know, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is what he saw. It's not he gave testimony to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, or bore witness to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and all that he saw, even to all that he saw. That's what he saw. He received, if you will, he received a word from God through Jesus by an angel. And he bore witness to that. Just to see that played out in Revelation, that God gives it to Jesus and Jesus gives it to an angel, look at Revelation chapter 5 and look at verse 1. You're familiar with this heavenly throne room scene? Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the one at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, here's the Lord Jesus holding the scroll, the revelation, that scroll that God gave to him. Now we're going to look at this more next week when we look at the book of Daniel and Revelation together a bit. But if you remember, Daniel's also given a scroll. But Daniel's told to seal it up till the time of the end. Seal it up to the time of the end. Don't open it now. And now in Revelation 5, Jesus has that scroll and he's opening it. Right? And there's that contrast being intentionally made. Go to Revelation 10 to see an angel with the same scroll or the scroll. Verse 1, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. So the Father gives the revelation to the Son, or our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus gives it to his angels, and his angels then deliver it to John. And then John wrote down all that he saw. He wrote down all that he saw. And what did he see? He saw the word of God. In other words, the word that comes from God. God is the source of that word. And he saw the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Jesus told him. Everything he saw came from the Father and from Jesus Christ, our King. This is, in other words, what I'm driving at here, and I hope you're picking up the point, is the giver of the revelation. This is a divine revelation. God is the one who reveals mysteries. We'll look at that more next week in my third point when we look back at Daniel 2 from where much of this language comes. Almost entirely in the Septuagint, the Greek phrase is the same, with the exception of a prepositional phrase. We'll look at that next week. But God is the revealer of mysteries. And that leads to our second point, the giver of the mysteries here, or the revelation of these mysteries as God. The second point I want to make is the nature of the revelation. The nature of the revelation. In other words, what is the nature of this book? What kind of book is this? What kind of book is it? To answer that, I want to look first at its genre and second at its clarity. That second point seems odd when I say nature, so I'll explain why in a minute. But first at its genre, let's look at first at the genre. Look at Revelation 1, 1 through 3 again and note the language. First phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation, apocalypse. When we think apocalyptic, we think of like horrible events are happening that are world shaking and any of the world, like, you know, 9-11 was apocalyptic or something. You guys understand what I'm getting at there. Apocalypse, though, is not talking about shattering events. Apocalypse is talking about an unveiling, an unveiling. There was some mystery that you knew partially that's now being revealed or unveiled so you see it fully. It's an unveiling. The revelation is an unveiling. 
It's revealing of a divine mystery that you only knew in part in a veiled way before that now you're coming to know in full. Look at further the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, notice the wording, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known, I'm going to come back to that in a minute, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, notice the last phrase, even to all that he saw, to show all that he saw. In other words, revelation is not just an unveiling of mysteries you only knew partially before and now fully, but revelation is a vision. It's not just an oral word that John hears, but a divine vision that he sees. He saw something, and then he's describing to us what he saw. Further, look at that phrase in the middle of verse 1. He made it known. I don't love this translation, he made it known. It's fine as far as it goes, but the language, samon or signs, is telling us that he made it known by signs or symbols. He revealed this in signs or symbols. Do you guys catch that? Look at verse 3 further. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That would be me. I'm reading aloud. There's a blessing upon me for reading aloud the words of this prophecy among the gathered saints. And what does it say? And blessed are those who hear and who keep. That would be you. Those to whom it's being read. Who keep what is written for the time is near. But notice that phrase, this prophecy. The words of this prophecy. So this is some kind of prophetic book. It is a prophetic vision. If I'm going to sum that up. It's a prophetic vision that reveals or unveils mysteries to us in signs or symbols. That's what he's getting at. It's a prophetic vision that's unveiling mysteries to us, and it's doing so in signs or symbols. So when someone asks me why I read the book of Revelation as a symbolic vision, my answer is simple. John says that's what it is. He said, I'm revealing it to you in signs or symbols. G.K. Beale was once here, Dr. G.K. Beale, who's probably written... Well, at least the longest commentary on Revelation, if not the best. I asked him about reading the book symbolically, and his answer to me was, because I take Revelation 1-1 literally, I take the book of Revelation symbolically. In other words, John tells me it's in symbols, and if I believe him, then I have to read it as symbols. The genre of the book is prophecy of the apocalyptic type. It's the visual prophecy. It's like the visual prophecy of Ezekiel. You read Ezekiel, you have these visual prophecies, but it's in a epistolary or letter form. So if you notice, you have this prologue and this greeting. Look at verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So you're getting a kind of letter form. So you're getting a prophetic vision that unveils something in a sort of letter form. It also has The vision starts at verse 9 of chapter 1, and the visions run all the way through chapter 22 and verse 9. But really, there's a crossover between the vision and the ending or the epilogue starting at 22 verse 6. If you look there, verse 22 verse 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down 
to worship at the feet of the angel who had showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And then he's going to go on in that epilogue and conclude the book. So this is a book of prophetic vision given in symbols in the context of something like a letter. It's a prophecy. You have the letter kind of address prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then the first vision in verse 9. And then from verse 9 of chapter 1, you essentially have these visions all the way through chapter 22 in verse 9. And then you have the epilogue. It's a prophecy. What do I mean by a prophecy? It's the application of God's word, his promises and his law, to what is currently happening in the world and to what is coming soon. To what is currently happening in the world and to what is coming soon. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 19. John just tells us that. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Now here's, again, he's going to tell you the things that have seen, and there's two kinds of things he's seen. Those that are... And those that are to take place after this. So when I said it's the application of God's word, his promises and his laws to what is currently happening in the world and to what is coming soon, I'm trying to follow that rhythm of John. Second, I want us to consider the nature of the book by considering its clarity. When I said it's clarity, it's kind of an odd thing to say when I say nature. But I'm asking what kind of book is this and I'm answering it's clear. It's pretty non-responsive as an answer. What kind of book is it? It's a clear book. It's understandable, but I think it needs to be stated that this is true with the book of Revelation precisely because John doesn't entitle it the enigma of Jesus Christ. He titles it the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was not given to present you some mystery that you can't make out. It was given to you to reveal mysteries. It was given to you to help you see and understand what God is doing. This is not Jesus handing John a set of puzzle pieces with no way to understand how to put them together. Rather, this is Jesus showing John and through John you the front of the box that the puzzle pieces came in. So you can see the picture as it is. That's a book that requires spirit-given wisdom to read. We're told that in Revelation 13, 18 and Revelation 17, 9. The unbeliever will never see the truth of this book. But I don't mean when we say that you have to have spirit-given wisdom and the unbeliever will never see the truth, I don't mean you have to have some kind of Gnostic secret insight to understand what I'm saying right now. You could follow my arguments right now as an unbeliever. But you cannot see it with the eyes of faith. You will not believe and obey. As Amos says of unbelievers in his day, they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Daniel makes the same reference in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 when he talks about sealing up the word of the book, this prophecy until the end. And then he goes on, they're going to run to and fro and knowledge will increase in the land. In the Greek translation of that, it's kind of fun. They'll run around crazy and unrighteousness will increase. In other words, it's the kind of unbelief that leads to madness, to not seeing the truth for what it is. Wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit to all those who are in Christ. Thus, we are given the wisdom to read this book with faith and to obey it. We're able to see things as they really are, not as they appear to those who are merely of the flesh. We might be struggling and suffering, persecuted and afflicted, weak and rejected in this world, but we see the truth. We see the truth. So what's this vision about? Broadly, it's about Christ and his church. That's a very broad way of saying it. It's a vision of Christ and his church. 
Let's consider the first and last vision just briefly. Look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I want to see the visions that sort of bracket this book. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Notice he's a partner in the tribulation. He's a partner in it. John, in the first century, a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this revelation, this book that we now have that John saw and wrote down for us begins with a revelation of Jesus Christ, the resurrected ascended Lord caring for his churches. Here's John in the midst of tribulation in first century Rome suffering either under Nero or Domitian, it matters not. As the Roman Empire was persecuting the Christian church at the time, there were all sorts of false teachers that abounded. John tells us that in 1 John chapter 2 with no little clarity. All around, they're suffering. The churches are struggling. And they wonder, here's the question, where is this resurrected Christ you told us about? Where's the end of all things and the consummation and the good news? being tortured, suffering, being imprisoned, dying, watching our friends run off into apostasy, hearing false teachers abound out there, doesn't sound like good news. Where is he? And the first vision John gets in that scene is a vision of the resurrected, ascended Christ caring for his churches. And you hear what he's seeing what Jesus is showing him. You look down here at the earthly level and you see a government that opposes and persecutes you. You see a church that is struggling. You see people who are suffering and being persecuted. You see folks who are walking away into apostasy and you wonder, where's Jesus? And I'm telling you, if you get your eyes off of this earth and get them on Christ, you will know. You'll be comforted. He's there among his church. And the revelation ends, the last vision. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Note the last vision. Then I saw, verse 1. It goes all the way through chapter 22, but I'm just going to read the first few verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here comes the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What is this bracketed by? A church in suffering and tribulation and persecution, seeing the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ, their king, walking among the churches caring for them, and a church in the new heavens and new earth at the consummation of all things, when he wipes away all their tears, and it's an end of all their tribulation, and it's a fulfillment of the promises that began all the way back in Genesis, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'll be your God, and you will be my son. That's what brackets this book. That's the nature of this book. It's a clear revelation. It's a clear set of symbolic symbols about Christ caring for his church in the midst of troubling times and of Christ carrying his church all the way home to glory in the consummation of his kingdom. That's the book that we're looking at. So as we go through it, don't lose those bearings. You miss the point. You miss the point. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. For its truth, help us to understand this letter as we walk through it. Give those of us who preach, myself and particularly in this series, myself and Russell and Jason, give us clarity as we study and as we teach. Help us point to Christ and his care for his church and his promise to consummate all things for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.